Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh dear brothers, sisters, friends and foes and welcome to a very special episode of the Blood Brothers podcast with your host Didi Hussain. I'm currently in West Canada touring five cities for United Islam Awareness Week. Uh, I want to give a big shout out to all the MSAs involved in this fantastic collaborative initiative. I'm joined by one of my co-speakers who I'm touring West Canada with and it's none other than Sheikh Dawood Walid. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa Sheikh, how you doing? Alhamdulillah, I'm as well. You know, uh, you, you, you're much more taller, more handsome than your Facebook pics. They were beautiful anyway. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> Allah bless you and preserve you. Ameen, ameen. Your age, your energy, everything. Ameen, ameen. How are you finding the tour so far? We've still got a heavy itinerary ahead of us. Well, uh, first night was good. Alhamdulillah, nice turnout. Uh, there was uh, a couple of our brothers from the Qur'aniyun who were there, but uh, <laughs> we handled them during the Q&A. One of them tried to totally disrupt the program. But, uh, you know, we we look at these uh, situations and we hope that uh, the message of the people got benefit. And we ask Allah to guide everyone, to guide us and to guide those Qur'aniyun brothers uh, back to the, the proper path of the Qur'an and the authentic sunnah Ameen. of our beloved Prophet wasallam. It was interesting, before we switched record, you were saying to me that you kind of miss the days where there were Sufi, Salafi discussions and debates, as divisive as they were, and the UK viewers know this very much so as well. But times have changed now. Why is it that a number of senior du'at and ulama missed those days as opposed to the challenges of today? Well, back in the old days on the college campuses and in the 90s, as you mentioned, it was those types of debates, but at least we were basing our debates on nusus, like there was some sort of textual evidence. It's the Quran, it's the books of a hadith. Uh, we talked about different rulings uh, of the uh, early fuqaha, uh, but those are the old days because now many of the bigger debates we have in the community, at least back in the States, is between those people who uphold the tradition, irrespective of madhab or manaj, uh, and then those who've gotten off into really uh, secular, uh, liberal type of, uh, of thinking where their primary driver of their intellectual thought is based in uh, a range of different philosophical uh, traditions that aren't part of the Islamic tradition, uh, from from perennialism to uh, critical theory, which produces critical gender studies and all of these types of things. So that's the that's the state of affairs in America these days. And, and I, I guess some of that has affected the UK as well. Um, do you fear that ulama themselves the sacred holders of this deen, that they could too be affected by some of these ideologies and ways of thinking? I think that overall the, the ulama... Um, uh, in the are, West, namely. The ulama in the West, I see overall in my travels in Canada uh, a few months, I mean uh, in UK a few months ago to here in Canada to here, I was even in, in Trinidad uh, a few weeks ago. Alhamdulillah, the vast majority of, uh, of scholars are, uh, are preserving upholding tradition. And this is what our Prophet said anyway, that the, the ulama are the, the vanguards or the heirs uh, of the prophets. I think where we lack sometimes the difference between uh, ulama and uh, du'at who are rooted in, tra in the tradition, stay in the traditional circles yeah. with the issue of uh, popular speakers 
Uh, and sometimes these popular speakers really aren't ulama, but because they're eloquent, maybe they have a large following on social media, they're asked to speak at uh, certain conferences that many times the awam confuse mm. uh, some, sometimes some popular speakers, uh, male and female, they confuse them as being uh, scholars when uh, perhaps they aren't really scholars. Okay, from what you've, I, I, and by the way, if, you know, we don't, sometimes we name and shame this podcast, sometimes I choose not to. For yeah. the sake of this podcast, we're not going to name anyone. Correct. How, however, let's put that category of people aside. Yeah. Right? Those who appear to come from an orthodox, appear to come from an orthodox perspective. Yeah. And... But I want to talk about those who tend to be from an activist background, yeah. from an academic background, a secular Western academic yes. background, who at face value seem to be calling for noble and laudable things. Yeah. Equality, justice, anti-racism, Islamophobia, equal rights, etc., etc. And it's interesting that you mentioned critical race theory, which is one amongst many uh, theories or, or ways of thinking which have is becoming increasingly prominent. How do we reconcile and bridge this uh, growing uh, split between traditional ulama and academics and activists who many of whom I've engaged with and they seem sincere in what they want to achieve. Yeah. But from their perspective, they will say that, look, the traditional ulama, those who are the practitioners of the sacred sciences seem to not, they're not with it. They don't understand how structural racism works hmm. and structural Islamophobia works. And they don't understand that uh, women and LGBTQ and Muslims, all three uh, communities are, um, are discriminated communities except, and on all the kind of various arguments. What would your kind of response be? Is there an absence or a lack of knowledge amongst the traditional ulama with regards to understanding new challenges from a structural point of view? Well, um... First of all, I think these two groups need to be in more conversation and discussion amongst each other in very uh, purposeful uh, gatherings. And it can't be simply a, a, a rad over Facebook or a rad over a YouTube yeah. uh, where uh, one person does something or says something and there's responses and it's back and forth. Uh, we, see, we saw this play out kind of ugly uh, a few months ago where a... Um, an academic uh, in America basically uh, tried to, uh, to to shame uh, Imam Zaid Shakir and Dr. Uh, Sherman Abdul Hakim Jackson. Uh, so, but besides the uh, the conversations, I do think there is some worth or some merit that uh, ulama should listen to um, points of view and become more abreast with some of the social political challenges and, and trends. It just can't be that the people who are following these trends try to superimpose uh, what they are viewing uh, anecdotally or even empirically to try to impose that uh, upon the ulama to force them to give the, the fatawa that they want to hear or to hear the type of uh, khutbah that they want to hear, right? Mm -hmm. So I think this is, I think this is really part of the challenge, but definitely, um, and I've seen this too, I used to talk about this, um, amongst friends in the 90s more so, but sometimes it would be a scholar that would come from uh, abroad and wasn't born and raised in the American context and been here for a little bit of time. Uh, and their news or what they follow is not from the American society. It's watching Al Jazeera or watching GOTV or whatever, right? And then 
their lectures sometimes are void from social, political uh, uh, context. I mean, and just to uh, give an example of how important this is, that scholars need to be very aware of this, that uh, in the, uh, traditionally in the, in the Maliki school of thought, there were different sub-branches we could say that broke off and developed in the Maliki school. Like, well, like, for example, because, uh, so you'd have um, the Medani uh, jurists, and then you had the Egyptian jurists and the Iraqis and the Maghrebis and the, and the Andalusis. Well, uh, on certain issues that relate to uh, mu'amalat and transactions, so that the Maghrebi scholar may give a different opinion on something than the Iraqi, or the Medani scholar might give something different from the one El Andalus. Why? Because there's some different socio-political context as far as like uh, more interaction with uh, Ahlul Kitab mm-hmm. uh, and some other like local factors on the ground. Where, and this is why Adet uh, um, and Urf are very important in Maliki School of Thought to understand the local customary practice as well as the culture uh, of the people. So it, it, it is, I would say, it is incumbent that um, that scholars do become aware of the socio-political trends and the cultures of the lands that they live in, but at the same time, uh, there can't be an issue where uh, someone comes up with some sort of uh, theory, or they try to use some sort of theory to actually abrogate um, what are called al-qatiyat, or the incontrovertible injunctions. Like, that can't override ijma'ah of what Muslims have held to be moral and immoral for the last 14 centuries. So this is uh, this is the problem uh, sometimes of these academics and activists, and this is why uh, the ulama are the vanguards and the protectors of the tradition and those things that aren't subject to debate no matter what land uh, mm. Muslims live in. Now, you've written a book called Sacred Activism. Yes, right? towards, sacred. Sacred activism. yes towards Sacred Activism. Um, and it, it, it's a very interesting topic because Within that book, you cite, uh, you know, uh, a prophetic uh, perspective on justice and others, which should shape and model our act, uh, uh, shape our activism. However, what do you then do when you're living at a time where you have a ulama, both in the West and the Muslim majority world, who unfortunately, for whatever reason, seem to clearly be on the wrong side of justice and in many cases, they're not find themselves on the size on the side of tyranny and oppression. Yeah. What to do then? Again, not to mention names. Yes. Whether it be in the West, we have certain ulama who justify and contextualize uh, state CVE laws yes. discriminate against Muslims and people mm-hmm. of color. Whether that be ulama going from the West to the Muslim world to to stamp an approval of oppressive regimes and wars and occupation. Mm-hmm. Where does sacred activism stand in, in, in these matters? Okay, that's a very good question. So th- there are matters that are clear cut and crystal clear. And then there are certain matters that we could consider to be uh, speculative or issues what we would call ijtihadi, right? So sometimes uh, a scholar may be involved in something or meeting with certain government officials and we look at it on the surface and say, this person is collaborating with this oppressive government or they're being used as a tool, where in fact, that scholar may be meeting with people to uh, to mitigate yeah, harm, right? Because, uh, you know, this is a real thing. Like, 
uh, sometimes our voices do need to be heard. And enjoining them for being evil uh, is incumbent upon us as Muslims. And if a person who has personal access is speaking to governmental leaders, they will have a different adab, uh, a different form of doing that than just common people on the street who are raising their voices. At the same time, it's very problematic when you do have scholars who are the the ulama uh, al-salatin, right? They are the 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 scholars of the governmental authorities and actually celebrate uh, leaders or celebrate uh, oppressive regimes, right? This in itself is uh, uh, very problematic. So as we can have husnudan for the one who may go and meet with the the leaders, but they're not celebrating uh, governmental leaders, not celebrating regimes. We do have that other issue, and I would say that um, our beloved Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, he warned us about being at the gates of the governmental authorities because we know that fitan uh, comes along with that, right? Um, it's 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 the it's the duty, uh, I believe, of uh, people who are uh, close to these scholars who have access. Uh, of course, with proper adab and, you know, with all due respect, have to remind these scholars about their role and not celebrating or actually cosigning zulm upon uh, the Muslims. So we can't have uh, fanboys and fangirls for shiuch, right? And uh, this is actually one of the, uh, the eras uh, that we know about um, Beni Israel, by the way, right? That they, or the people of the book that take their their monks and their rabbis as as arbab, so. as lords, right? Mm-hmm. And in the uh, tafsir of this, it is said that uh, they didn't pray to them nor they fast uh, for their sake, but that they blindly followed them and they followed them when yeah. they made the impermissible permissible right and this is how they made their lord so um uh, uh those things that are part of the uh necessities of 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 the dean uh, all of the common muslims everyone is supposed to know those and when we see uh someone openly uh celebrating tyranny we see someone openly celebrating uh, the murder uh, of Muslims or celebrating regimes that are openly murdering the Muslims. These uh, ulama, and we respect their uh, ijazat, we respect their degrees, but they're not people that we should be fanboying and fangirling and being a part of their club and going out and defending them or thinking that, oh, um, you know, they're, uh, I heard this one in one particular sheikhs, someone, said, oh, you know, well, this is a wali of Allah, you know, and whoever is at enmity with a wali of Allah is like, it, 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 Allah is at war with them. I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> like, like you can't invoke wilaya, yeah. like a wali of Allah is not going to like openly celebrate uh, Muslims being bombed in the country or scholars being put on death row. Uh, may, may Allah as well free our, our, our scholars who are uh, unjustly uh, locked up in, in, in parts of the Muslim world. This is, this is my view. But, should, but sacred activism, or to all sacred activism, surely should have some parameters and red lines. Definitely. Right? And what I tend to find, and this applies to the UK as well, right? Um, we'll get to social media in a bit. Yeah. But in terms of 
the awam. Yeah. Which which includes everything from students to taxi drivers to academics to activists to mothers to daughters to college students. It's an array of different people from different backgrounds. Is there any legitimate grounds for the awam to hold ulama to account? Is is is, is there any normative basis for the masses to hold the ulama to account? Because one thing I've heard, Sheikh, is only ulama can hold other ulama to account. This is something which I've heard a lot as well. Is there any space with other? That's a caveat, of course, without a shadow of a doubt. But is there any space or any room when a Muslim is in a journey towards sacred activism that they that a time may come where they have to address scholars and hold them to account as they would do with their leaders? Well, most definitely. I mean, no one is beyond uh, reproach, and there are people who can, uh, who should talk to and bring forth concerns uh, to ulama. And you know, the the scholars of our tradition, we don't believe that they're ma'asumin. Uh, we don't believe they're infallible. Like we don't see someone as some like grand supreme leader or ayatollah that we just have to uh, accept that you know every thing that they've said or every position that they've made. Is somehow uh, binding upon us. That's not. Uh, that's not our way. Um, uh, some people have critiqued this narration, but will invoke it for the sake because there's uh, there's wisdom in it. So we know that uh, from the narrations that uh, Omar ibn al-Khattab, the famous uh, Ali, uh, in the issue of one of the women from the Awam, yes. uh, we don't even know that she was even from the Sahabiyat. Uh, try, regarding Mahar. Yeah, yeah, regarding Mahar, yeah. Um, but uh, she um, she was common, common woman, uh, raised the issue about the Mahar where he tried to put a cap on it. And she stood up and told, uh, I mean, this is the first man to carry Taya Amir al-Mu'mineen. I mean, even Abu Bakr Siddiq was, was uh, Khalif al Rasul. He, he wasn't called Amir al-Mu'mineen, but she stood up and said, to Amir, and, and, and as we know, uh, Omar uh, wasn't a pushover. He wasn't Absolutely. like some some softy. Yeah. And she stood up and corrected uh, the, the 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 leader of the Muslims. And he said that you know that uh, Omar is wrong and this woman is right. Right. So this is and uh, we wouldn't be fooling, foolish to say that any scholar uh, in the UK or America has a level of ilm of Umar al-Khattab, right? No. But, right, I mean, whoever said that, they're completely delirious, mm. right? So, um, like, so, if this took place to some of the greatest Muslims where people of the awam uh, didn't fear that they would be castigated or blacklisted from the community would bring uh, uh, up a, a concern or, or even bring up what they think that uh, a scholar makes an error. If it didn't happen way back then, then we we shouldn't be trying to play that uh, that card. That, oh yeah, well you know this is this is an alim and he's a wali and how dare you question a wali of Allah question question uh, this this alim like who do you think you are? I don't think that's and and, and any real scholar um, doesn't mind not only being questioned but even to be. Uh, at times challenged about their about their legitimate about their views right and um you know that's that's my response to those people I say you have no business questioning uh, uh a scholar 
uh, questioning their opinion. And then also, when scholars are in tough jams, sometimes they will even uh, reach out to other people just to get their opinion. And I've seen this happen uh, before as well. So Now, ideally, we want to have you and our listeners to actually buy the Sheikh's book. There will be a link for it at the bottom of this yes. uh, podcast. However, if there's some red lines and some parameters that you could sh- briefly give the lay Muslims, yeah. that when they embark on speaking truth to power or holding leadership and um, leaders and rulers and ulama to account. Can you give us some red lines as to these things should not be crossed when you're embarking on this? Okay. So, um, knowledge is very important and also remembering adab is both very important. So in all of our books, when we read about the conditions of enjoying and good and forbidding the evil, because really this is what we're talking about, speaking truth to power. Yeah, that there are shurut to conditions like any other command. And of it is that one must know what is mahruf and what is al-munkar, which means there needs to be some sort of knowledge, right? And in order for something to be just, and or to be wholesome, then it's based in sitq and truthfulness, right? Mm-hmm. And so we have to understand uh, the truth and try to investigate and be robust as much as we can, which means there has to be ilm involved, right? It just can't be feelings. Just can't say, oh, I feel that he did something wrong or she did something wrong. So there has to be some grounding or some, some basis. Uh, I would also say that when we're talking uh, to our, our ulama and if we're able to contact them, uh, the first step uh, should not be this so-called call out or cancel culture, right? Uh, Rasulullah alayhi salam didn't cancel people, right? By cancel, you mean writing them off, making videos, writing posts before even directly contacting exactly, them? Exactly, exactly. Trying to contact them. So, what if they're so, beyond, so, so, what if they're beyond reach? Because many, because what I've some heard, are some are beyond reach. Yeah, yeah. Because, because a common thing I've heard is that look. Yeah, that's great. If we could get hold of this sheikh, he's up in his ivory tower. How am I going to get hold of him? I have to go through his entire entourage if I have to get through to him. Well, and it's, it's interesting you mentioned this because I, I was discussing this with, a, with a, a situation that I know that if the sheikh is that unaccessible to uh, even have any sort of communication, then that's just something that's a symptom of a bigger issue, perhaps, right? But in terms of those who we can... Why do you think that scholars generally should be accessible to the masses? Irrelevant of how big and grand they are. Uh, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was accessible to anyone who came. Uh, He was not able to... He didn't have a special chair. He was in... When a visitor came and didn't know uh, what he looked like and he was amongst his sahaba, no one could look at his dress or look at who he was physically to see, you know, who he who he was, right? Um, when one of the luminaries in Islam, for instance, in our history, uh, 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 Sayyidina Nafisa, who was a big scholar, actually a um, a, a spiritual teacher of, of Imam Shafi'i, uh, she would be amongst the people. And like again, we're talking about. Uh, well, obviously, no one can be at the maqam of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. But even someone who's great like Sayyidina Nafisa, these people were were accessible. I mean, this was a female scholar too. So, right? with that, so without digressing, right, right, right. 
very I'm, I'm sorry for digressing. No, 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 but it's important. It's yeah. important. So very briefly, why have we got to a stage where certain ulama are inaccessible? Both in the West and in the Muslim world. Um, why, why have we got to this stage? Perhaps there are some, there are different reasons for different shiyukh. Uh, for the uh, scholars for dollars who do the bidding for corrupt governments, uh, they don't want to be seen accessible to the generality, one, because they're working for the state. And then two, uh, they themselves who have been facilitators or helping of injustice may fear actual reprisal. But uh, let's put those let's, 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 those people aside. Like I've mentioned, for instance, the Mufti of Syria. Like I just dropped a name, Ahmed Hassoun, right? He's 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 a Mufti for the regime. Um, like so, like. It's understandable why he's he wouldn't be accessible to the masses, right? But then you have some other uh, shuk, I believe, uh, who have well, I say three groups of people. You have shuk who have these entourages and aren't accessible because they see it as part of a um, an allure to make themselves appear to be above the masses. It gives them a type of grandeur, a type of so-called uh, posture, right? Um, then I think there's a third group, and this is true too, because I know of this in some cases. There are some scholars or teachers who have gatekeepers. And meaning is that, um, yeah, there's ways of maybe emailing them and talking with them, but they have schedulers because they're so busy. Okay. They have they have planners or people who are helping with their schedule because they're actually so busy. And then the planner or the handler will then not relay all communication or only relay certain communication to other people because that planner is operating from a nefsani position. It's about their ego because they have the power no. or the control to see who gets access, access to the sheikh or who doesn't and they use it for their own for their own reputation for their egoism, yeah. their own egotistical uh, reasons and even with some of them maybe it's even some sort of financial benefit that could be gained. I think there's three different reasons but um, outside of these very extremely popular um, uh, speakers uh, the adab of speaking with your local scholar or even a scholar you have access to has made a problematic position. The first rule of Al-Amr al-Mahruf Munkar is to enjoin the good and forbid the evil with a sense of a mild tone and the level of kindness. Not, when, not harshness. Not harshness, much less calling them names mm -hmm. or yelling at them. So we we'll just use the Quran as an example of, of hujjah for this position. Uh, we know that the uh, the worst tyrant mentioned in the Quran is Fir'aun. Uh, and uh, Musa and Harun were two prophets that, go to, that were commanded to go to Fir'aun to do this And when they were commanded to go, Allah gave them the command uh, Yes, that when you go to Fir'aun, the worst of the worst, that you go speak to him in a mild tone, least he remember or fear. What are the verses that follow that verse? Mm -hmm. The verses that follow that very yes. verses then indicates a level of harshness from Musa Islam to Fir'aun. Yes. And Musa did eventually become very harsh. Yes, but his starting approach 
the first approach when he went to Faron, the first approach is before you double down and then before you come with the, the, the harsher tone, the first step is to go with a level. And, and, and again, we're not, and, and the point that I'm really trying to get at is that um, the first point of call at the, the very least. The first point, yeah, but also Sheikh Fulan bin Fulan, I don't think he's Faron. Even if he's made a problematic position, right? He's definitely he, not. He's not. He's not thrown, right? Yeah. So um, that's why I say. But there is a level of um, of sometimes there needs to be uh, an, an escalation of of language and and in tone uh, in regards to speaking to people. We also have the saying of of sadaqah, right? So it doesn't mean that having to kabar in one's heart thinking you're better, but basically to put someone who is arrogant in their place is a form of sadaqah. This is, this is in the hadith, yeah. by the way, but this is a saying uh, that comes from the uh, from the salihin, right? So um, uh, there there is a time for that. Now, if the person uh, if the person is unable to be spoken to directly, I would say, in my opinion, the next step would be to reach out to someone that you know who has access, right? So even amongst some of these shiyuk, they have a uh, a contemporary, they have a colleague, or they have someone who can talk to the person mm-hmm. and relay uh, a concern. So I'll just give you an example real quick. Like, I'm going to name drop right here. Um, a few years ago, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf made some comments at re- Reviving the Islamic Spirit. About Black Lives Matter? Uh, yeah, yeah, about Black Lives Matter. Now, um, I thought that, and I'm not a supporter of Black Lives Matter, by the way, but I thought that, uh, and many people thought that Sheikh Hamza's uh, comments in the context were very... We've got to believe and black families looking at their own family makeup and, and issues. Yeah, basically, yeah, basically that his response to uh, the the systematic targeting of African-Americans by law enforcement from mass incarceration to beatings to murders is that, oh, well, you know, you, you, if, if you got your families together uh, in order, then you wouldn't be getting beat up or killed by the police, which is preposterous, right? It's a preposterous, it's, it's, it's preposterous <laughs> position. So, um, but the point of it is, is that uh, many people were upset I said something to one of these people who was close to Sheikh Hamza. I didn't have his contact information. It was relayed. And then uh, Sheikh Hamza got my phone number and he gave me a call. And I talked to him about it and I encouraged him, for instance, to apologize right now. He apologized the next day and maybe the way he apologized actually made people more angry. But, but the point is, <clears throat> the point is, is that I reached out to someone uh, who then had access to the concern, and he was humble enough to call and want to uh, to to listen to the uh, the concern. So I just bring that up as an example that sometimes, and he's one of these people in in the states who's seen as kind of like a rock star uh, sheikh, right, or like a rock star scholar. But now maybe not so much of late. Yeah, not so yeah, but, but but now maybe some people might retort back. Well, they say, well, Daud, you're 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 a sheikh, so maybe that's why he called you. But if you if you weren't, then maybe he wouldn't have called you. And maybe that is true. But the point is, is that before I wrote something on on a Fasuk book yeah. to try to put him on blast, that's yeah. why I call Facebook Fasuk book. Yeah. Fasuk book. Um, I went to someone and said, "This this is 
highly problematic. Uh, I didn't like it at all. And then um, within about four hours, like I got a call. Staying on the, just, just Sheikh Musa Yusuf is perhaps the best example in terms of trying to contextualize some of these yeah. uh, realities that we're talking about. So we had his comments about Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And police brutality. We had his comments about Ikhwan al Muslimin and, and other kind of. Which I thought his Ikhwan comments were actually even more dangerous yes. than the Black Lives Matter yeah. comments, for sure. Yeah. And, and then you obviously have his frequent visits to the UAE, the yeah. peace conference. He made some comments about the Syrian uprisings very recently. Yeah. Next day he apologized. How do we then, the, the Muslims, uh, sincere Muslims who have a ghira and a genuine sentiment for the affairs of the Muslims, deal with a rock star Sheikh like Hamza Yusuf, who seems to have, sadly, unfortunately, for whatever reasons, and I'm sure he has his reasons, the kind of comments keep to seem to come up every six to eight months. Black Lives Matter, uh, political Islam, Syrian revolution. There's something, one thing or another that's coming up and it's usually followed by an apology um, or that someone's jet lagged or... What do you do? <laughs> well, I would say one, we have to continue to make dua for our brothers and sisters who fall into this and who make uh, mistakes. Do you think their challenges are, are distinctly more difficult and harder than perhaps the lay people? I think their challenges in many ways are more... Um, when you're very popular with access, you have more problems of like falling into pitfalls and making mistakes, especially if you're more public mm. and the like the, the the target or the spotlight is on a person so for instance like if someone i, I give before i finish with the answer i give an example so there was a, f a few years back when obama was still president that there was a movement talking about well boycott the white house iftar mm -hmm. and it said yeah well you know i wouldn't go to the white house iftar but the, the funny thing about it is that 99 percent of people who said this they would never be invited to begin with like they have no access mm -hmm. so like there's a very theoretical situation right but if you were invited and put that test would you go to obama's iftar and then if you did go would you say something would to him or would, um i wouldn't have gone i wouldn't have gone okay. M myself personally I, I wasn't a friend of uh of, of like i don't need to go and eat hummus with obama if i can't have a conversation especially when he invites uh the israeli ambassador mm -hmm. to the white house while gaza is being bombed during ramadan so no i like no, I'm, I'm not of that school of thought right but uh, besides praying for brothers and sisters who get involved in these issues and make uh, 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 mistakes, uh, the corrections that should be done um, and should be lifted up or shared, I believe, should still be respectful. In other words, um, it's about the issues and not about the personality. So I know some people who are uh, African-American, who are uh, activists and academics, they went as far as to like say that Sheikh Hamza Yusuf is a white supremacist. Like that's, that's outrageous. That's yeah, a, yeah. A, that is outrageous. That's a that's common that, one that's that, been that, circulated. Yeah, yeah. And, and not just with Hamza Yusuf, but we like this other Ismail Roya and others yeah. who, have, who have been labeled like white supremacists or people who simply just are oblivious to black lived experiences or that of people of color. It's a common thing that I'm seeing, especially not just for Sulk book, but for uh, yeah. Twitter and everything as yeah. well. It's very common. Yeah, yeah. So that that shouldn't be that shouldn't be the uh, the, the discourse. I mean, number one, uh, 
we should be fearful of Allah not being involved in qadf or, or slander because to say that your Muslim brother or sister is a white supremacist is a very strong uh, position. It's a very strong name to call someone, especially in the American context. Um, so that's that's one thing that I would like to lift up uh, in regards to this. But the other thing is that... What about white savior complex? What about, what about this attitude, this mindset, which I would humbly present that we even have in the UK where white Caucasian converts who tend to come from an upper middle class background. We're not mm-hmm. talking about white converts that come from a working class background. Those that come from an upper middle class background, usually a very devout Christian background, come to the Dean and they kind of look at African and Asian and non-white culture as aggressive and mm-hmm. backward and, and they approach their da'wah as constantly telling Asians and Blacks and Arabs and Turks and Kurds and Africans where they're going wrong. Is there a difference between white supremacy, which, I, which is a very harsh term, yeah. and a white saviour complex? Uh, it could just be someone as being, as you mentioned, like being uh, oblivious. And it is the role of those Asians, or those Africans who are around these people to actually talk to them and to educate them, not to come to their defense all the time and act as if they're masoom, which which in, in, in cases, I believe when there's been some people that have made these mistakes or said some of these things and come off in such a way, uh, I actually blame the brown brother and sister or the black brother and sister who are, who are close to them, who have access to actually defend what they say. Right, they actually defend their positions because that, that perpetuates that, it. that perpetuates it. So, if someone is is un, uninformed or ill-informed because they never have that lived experience, who haven't gone through that, and they've grown up with this uh, middle class, upper middle class, uh, white background in these societies, then how are they supposed to know? Right. So, there's a level of education. So, obviously. Uh, when we when people convert to Islam or become Muslims, they just don't declare the shahadatain and everything that's in their heart or in their mind is, is is eliminated. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this didn't even happen with the Sahaba, mm. right? Who is the best generation? Sahaba. So uh, they had to go through a level of evolution and being educated. Absolutely. Likewise, some of these uh, some of these uh, individuals who make these types of comments. Mm. Um, you know, there has to be a level of um, of, of, of constant uh, education. And also, too, if someone has held a particular view for 30 years, 40 years, you can't expect just talking to them one kind, one time or as, or, or as we say back in the old days of pulling someone's coat one time. You can't expect them that their whole mentality, their whole worldview is going to change with just one conversation. There has to be. Uh, there has to be repetition. Bringing the podcast to a close, I want to raise something with you. Uh, sure. When I first came into uh, contact with Exposure, uh, and by the way, I've benefited from your Facebook post, so it's not full book for you. I've, okay. I, although I've, I've benefited a lot from Probably your posts and your commentaries. Um, I'll accept it from you, I mean. But one thing I did notice in some of your posts, you highlight the skin color of mm-hmm. certain prophets and certain companions. Sure. To recall two specific examples, I recall there have been others. There's one which you mentioned about Musa alayhi salam, which by the way, uh, I believe the Prophet sallallahu alayhi even described about his skin complexion, yes. that it was dark. Yes. Um, 
But you also, if I recall, please correct me, that Imam Hussein, was he ever, uh, there was someone from Ahlul Bayt that you mentioned. Yes, definitely. What, what's the need to highlight the skin complexion of prophets and companions? Okay, so let's go back to this process. It's actually, it relates to uh, uh, a problem that we saw, myself and the co-author of our uh, Centering Black Narrative books, that we saw uh, a level of not only um, anti-black comments and behaviors in certain segments of the Muslim community, but also like a, uh, a whitewashing of history, right? So uh, the first and primary reason is that history should be told correctly for the state, for the sake of history. But we also found it to be very interesting that in these, we're not just coming up with these descriptions out of our heads. They're mentioned in El-Bukhari, they're mentioned by Ibn al-Jawzi, they're mentioned by great and prolific scholars that when we would mention some of these things, there would be other brothers, some brothers that would have very harsh responses, almost like, well, why do you have to mention that? But um, if it's mentioned about Sayyidah Aisha having light, having lighter color skin and red hair, that's not problematic. So the, the issue is, why is it problematic to mention a prophet or someone from the Sahaba or someone from the descendants of the Prophet, Ahlubayt, uh, having dark skin, but if someone is lighter skin, or we, many times, like when people read the Shema'il, uh, or they talk about how the Prophet looks, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and would, talk about his, his skin color. Chef, wouldn't it be then that the reason why the, the, the lighter skin tone, I'm just playing advocate here, uh -huh. wouldn't it be the case that if the reason why the lighter skin tone of a, of a companion or a Prophet was mentioned was because the default baseline was darker skin? Definitely, it was darker skin than some of them are mentioned also as being very dark. But some of these great people, their their uh, their appearances were mentioned or written down in books. But we we simply we wrote this for two reasons. The first reason is just to relay history in a more accurate way. Like, for instance, and I had to go through this with my children, like when they saw uh, the message, for instance, very good movie. And they have Sumeya being seen looking like a Greek woman. I thought, well, Sumeya was a black woman. Like she had Absolutely. black skin. Amara bin Yasser had very dark skin. Like if you were to look at that movie, the only black Sahabi you would think was, was Sayyidina Bilal. Bilal yeah. Right. So I had to like say, look, like this doesn't, um, this is not accurate. And this is also something when people are brown or black, it's important that they're able to see or at least to read about images that reflect how they looked at, that the everyone else just doesn't look like someone else right uh but the the other thing besides of clarifying this is that there is a reality at least within the american context i can't speak to it as much as uk or canada but there is an issue of colorism in our community there is an issue of anti-blackness in our community so so we so we so we we wrote this to try to uh give clarity for instance i remember um some South Asian Muslims kind of me and being so happy when I gave a lecture and I mentioned that uh, Sayyidina Ali, uh, that uh, after Fatima Zahra passed away, he married a woman uh, who gave birth to his son Muhammad, known as Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiya. And I described her as Kenneth Sindia Sauda, that she was a a woman with black skin from the region of Sindh, which is modern-day Pakistan, right? So I like I, I mentioned that, and people were like, "Oh, I, I didn't know," and like, "Thank you," and especially no, and no, really, and especially when you have some 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 girls in our community 
who to this day are passed over for marriage or the auntie wants her to, to like go through a boot camp of fair and lovely for one month before 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 the before the nikah or the walima so she comes out so she can you know look fair yeah color, uh, it, it, it's a problem colorism and anti-darkening most definitely exist within the indo indo pak bengali community that goes without a shadow of a doubt yeah but i guess the point i'm trying to stress is that yes without a shadow of a doubt there were companions that were most definitely of a dark skin uh, complexion right you're what you're then if i'm correct in understanding you're saying that because that's been whitewashed in yes. the books of history there's an importance to re-highlight that Exactly. And this is why we went to the original sources. We even went through the commentaries of Imam Anawawi, and talking about some of the hadith, like what did the Prophet mean when he said a person was Ahmar and when a person was Aswad, right? Like what does that actually mean, right? So, um, yeah, we, we highlighted that in, in, in the books. Actually, I don't even talk about it as much as, as, I, as I used to because when we first wrote this and we're talking about this, this was on after the issue of the um, of the murder of Mike Brown in, in, in Ferguson. And actually uh, a lot kind of was exposed in the community on Fasuk book yeah. where a lot of anti-black comments were being made by American Muslims. Like, you know, well, you know, if the people there didn't act like savages, then, then the police wouldn't police them like that. And actually, I know some Muslims personally um, from uh, from Lebanese background that I really stopped talking with because their their conversations had gotten so um, toxic. Yeah, I don't like using that term because that so-called toxic masculinity. Yeah, so yeah. I try to stay with that <laughs> term, but it, it got so bad, right? Yeah. So um, so, but the level of anti-blackness and some of the things that arose in the Muslim community. Uh, and even people seeing the issue, even some Muslim brothers who were killed by the police, that not being seen as a Muslim enough issue. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a part of what, what spurred this type of discourse. Now, my discourse and what I write about has primarily changed because internal racism in, in, in the Muslim community and colorism, I don't see that as even one of the top three issues anymore. Uh, what, 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 I, what I've been focusing on more is one, the issue of trying to get us back to the tradition and to give us uh, and to try to safeguard us from this uh, liberal so-called woke thought, like leading us not into only deviant beliefs, but also kufr. God. This is this is the yeah the, uh, this is uh, the primary concern. I also have a a, a very high concern of raising young Muslim boys into being responsible Muslim men because there's been a level of emasculation. Are you discussing the Mad Mumblers Yeah, yeah. Well, we have a bunch of of of, of weak backs mm -hmm. and a bunch of uh, soft brothers who aren't being manly, right? And this is these are probably like my my two top concerns. And then another concern because I have uh, a daughter, but this relates back to the first point about the liberal thought and the woke culture, but. Um, it's this radical feminism that has affected the thoughts in our community, which is leading to a number of negative social consequences from um, sisters delaying marriage, not being able to find suitable mates, not saying they don't want to be married at all, um, and some other antisocial things. I'll just give you an example of uh, something that startled me that I heard of, that I heard about uh, that happened on the West Coast, but uh, a sister. Uh, a professional 
has her own career, has her own money. Mm. I never got married, but wanted to have children. So uh, she went for uh, artificial insemination and got some like random nutfa injected into her to have a kid. But then she went to the uh, a sheikh who I know and wanted to have the aqiqah in the Islamic center, in the masjid for a baby that she had from from some some some, some, some random yeah, yeah. sperm so like how did like so like that can't be allowed in the masajid not because the child that, that there's no blame on the child but we can't normalize this of course, right you normalize that you open like a floodgate of madness yeah it's a floodgate of madness right so like like then sisters would just be going to go get some random sperm from god knows who to have children with no father figure there no one there and all. like it, it's it's madness right so like these are like some of the major things issues, my, my top three issues of, of 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 addressing on a macro level obviously there's other issues in the community. There's a rising, uh, in our locality, there's a rising issue of, of Muslims getting hooked on drugs and also selling drugs, right? Like it's, it's. But that's like that's it, been there for a time though, Chef. We have like gangbangers and shotters and drug dealers and trapsters. That's been there for time. It's been going on, but like in our area, um, not to this extent of young guys overdosing and dying. So, like for instance, in Dearborn, Michigan, I know of just over the summer of. 15 cases of Muslims overdosing and dying off of opiate, opioids alone, not including the overdoses off of cocaine, right? Uh, and then uh, Muslims who are um, getting caught up in the drug trade, they're getting involved in getting uh, HIV from uh, from the practices that go along with, with drug use and needles. So you're, saying and needles. You're, you're saying it's getting worse than the last 10, 15, 20, 30 years, from the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s. You think it's The worse? opioid crisis amongst Muslims has gotten worse because it's gotten worse in a broader society. Okay. Right, so, and, and this is this is a real problem. But even though, even that, is, as much as I worry about that, yeah. um, that's still not one of the, the top three things of concern, at least on my radar. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> bringing the podcast to a close one final comment i need from you right yes what advice would you give to non-black muslim scholars who want to address issues pertaining to a respective community the black community let me get, let me let me tell you why i will ask you this yes in the uk there's a there's a perceived problem of asian slash pakistani grooming gangs that Pakistani slash South Asian men target young white girls because they're seen as easy flesh, easy targets, um, mostly underage. Uh, it, yeah, they're seen as easy game, and then they kind of they they kind of. Um, but that's not a big problem, is it? It's made significantly bigger by the press and the politicians. That's what I would think. But yeah. it does exist. Exists. Yeah, yeah. Mm. like like sexual exploitation of 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 youngsters that exists that transcends all communities. Right? Yeah. But there seems to be a disproportionate focus on it happening in the north and the midlands of the UK. Mm -hmm. So we have certain ulama that come out and they give Friday khutbahs addressing the issue of young Muslim men or young Asian Pakistani <clears> men <throat> not um, uh, you know, targeting young white girls, etc, etc. Mm -hmm. And sometimes some issues, even though they transcend communities mm -hmm. and it applies everywhere, sometimes they're just they're, they're, they're applied um, usually in absence of data, right? right? How do you, what advice would you give to Muslim scholars 
imams to address issues uh, pertaining to the black community. In the UK, the census report 2011, this is official government data, mm -hmm. said that the highest number of single parent families were from African Caribbean communities. Mm -hmm. um, the highest number of, um, um, the, break, the way they define uh, married coupled families, right? The lowest number was from African Caribbean communities. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, based on that, there was a number of integration reports that came out, most of which were carried out by racists themselves. But nevertheless, right. the point was made from based on data that African Caribbean communities in the UK have the highest number of single parent families mm -hmm. and that this has a socioeconomic effect in the way they have their relationship with the establishment, uh, authority, etc, etc. Now, how can one address this issue without uttering racist stereotypes? Because we know mm -hmm. the, 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 the historical relationship with black communities, especially in the States, it has to be understood from the from the place of the transatlantic slavery, from European colonialism. It has to be understood from the from the from a structural institutional point of view, mm -hmm. right? But how do you address these issues without being labelled? Oh, look, my guy is just coming, he's just writing off the black community. Well, two things I would say. I think the first thing is that those scholars need to be involved in discussions with their peers who are from African descent, right? Mm -hmm. And if they have questions about this or how they address it, they should get information and understand the sensitivities and maybe the history. And they can learn this from having the discussions with those black imam scholars or community leaders. I think this is fundamental, right? I think the second thing is uh, we have to question um, if that imam or these scholars aren't addressing uh, Afro-Caribbean communities, is it an issue Oh, one th sorry about that. It, is it is it an issue that they should be speaking on the Manabatu to majority Asian Jamaa or or a totally Asian Jamaa? Like what what is the maqsid by that discourse in that Jamaa if it doesn't apply to that Jamaa? Like why even have that discussion to begin with? Um, I mean the so there's wisdom that needs to be involved in regards to these discussions. I, I will tell you that uh, in the American context, in the, in the American, so let me finish this point. In the American context, there's a similar issue where the highest percentage of people who have uh, wedlocks out of birth are African-American people, right? However, this doesn't apply to the Muslim community. Right. So even if you're having this discussion in a, in a khutbah where everyone in the Jama'a is a descendant of enslaved Africans or they're immigrants from Gambia, from Senegal or et cetera. Um, giving this khutbah and focusing on that issue where it doesn't affect the Musaleen that are there, then you have to wonder uh, why this is being addressed in a khutbah. And if it is addressed, what is the lesson that is being derived for these Muslims to engage with their non-Muslim family members, right? So it, it, it requires a level of, of, wisdom, of, of wisdom. Yeah, and an assessment of benefit. Yeah, so it's a wisdom and assessment of benefit. So um, there are certain issues that I would talk about amongst imams 
and uh, or people who study a particular text, like for instance, Al-Madawana Al-Kubra, mm-hmm. who was written by one of the chief students of Imam Malik. Mm-hmm. Would I go in front of the Awam and discuss some very particular issues when they're not Malikis and don't understand the issue? No, I wouldn't. Why? Because it wouldn't have any benefit. And in fact, it may cause confusion even to discuss certain things in, in the text, right? Likewise, we have to assess the, the, the benefit or why would something need to be discussed in the begin with. And then there's a level of, of, of education. And then sometimes we have to look at not just the message, but the messenger who's giving the message. Is, is, it, is the person the appropriate person to deliver this message in this particular audience? I think it's, it's, it's very important. For instance, I wouldn't go in front of a Jama'ah uh, and, and uh, lecture um, uh, South Asians about how they should deal with the issue of Kashmir. That wouldn't be appropriate for me to do, right? Even though I care a lot about Kashmir and the dhum that's going on there. I think you should. Maybe I'm not the most appropriate. It's my job to raise the awareness of Kashmir and what's going on in the history that I've learned from Kashmiri brothers to go in front of Arabs, to go in front of the African community and raise that concern or invite them into the community and have someone who's Kashmiri or someone who's Pakistani to talk to, to, the, talk black to the black, black people okay. about the suffering, the history of the Kashmir because they understand it better than okay. I do. But, but I, I just want to, I totally agree with you and you actually responded and answered all my proposed interjections. Yeah? Okay, <laughs> sorry. No, 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 it's, you, you respond to it. I just feel that we may enter a, a, a scenario where only black ulama and imams can talk about black issues and only the Arab can speak about Arab issues and only the South Asians can talk about South yeah. Asian issues. And we are Ummatul Wahid, we are, we, we are one body and we should be able to talk about each other's affairs. But you're saying that the caveat should be knowledge, understanding and perhaps linking up the different communities together. So you talk about Kashmir to the black community or maybe bring a South Asian Kashmiri speaker to speak to the black community about Kashmir. Is that what you're saying? Yes, I would say okay, I, I would say that. But even there's sometimes maybe where uh, there are some suggestions or certain things that are being said in front of an all uh, South Asian community from someone who's black or someone's out of. So I'm not saying that these topics are completely hands off to discuss it all. But there has to be a level of, of wisdom, and a level of caution, because uh, we have to um, understand our knowledge level. And we also have to understand the uh, the sensitivities of the people and this is uh in public speaking classes they say that the first uh rule of public speaking know your audience well this is a saying of uh, of Sayyidina ali when he's a nas ala that you have to speak to people or preach to people according to their mentalities Absolutely. right so this is you have to understand how it's you have to try to uh discern how is what i'm going to say affect the general I mean, there's always going to be a few people here and there, but the general, the generality, right, when you're speaking to audiences. It was an absolute pleasure. Alhamdulillah. May Allah bless you. Amen. Brothers and sisters, and that is all for today's episode. For our viewers and listeners from North America, subscribe to the Mad Monbooks channel. For those of you watching from the UK and Europe and elsewhere, subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel. Another shout out to the five universities in West Canada. Uh, in Calgary, in Saskatchewan, in Burnaby, in Vancouver, in Edmonton. A big shout out to all the MSAs involved in United Islamic Awareness Week. May Allah bless you and accept all your efforts. Uh, Ameen. Uh, leave a comment, like this video. And until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.
Blood Brothers Podcast. A five pillars of mad monolith production.